0: You know, there are those today, even among uh, spiritual leaders, and put that in quotation marks, that would suggest to you that Jesus never really rose from the dead. And that his resurrection really wasn't a miracle so much as it was a kind of metaphor. Yeah, they'll agree with you Jesus died, but then they'll tell you that his personality and his teachings so affected the disciples, his early followers, that the idea of the resurrection just sort of morphed over time and became a symbol of the faith. But there's some problems with that. I mean... That doesn't explain what happened to this little group of Christ followers 2,000 years ago. They were not transformed in every way because Christ rose from the dead metaphorically. They didn't form the world's first cross-cultural community consisting of Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, rich, and poor based on an idea. They didn't sacrifice land and their possessions, their reputations, their vocations, and their positions based on a symbol. They didn't go through persecution and even death, death by the thousands, believing that they themselves would somehow be resurrected metaphorically. They did it because they knew that they knew that they knew He is risen. That's right. Jesus died. They saw it for themselves. Then three days later, the tomb was empty. And the first thought was that maybe somebody came and carried Jesus' Jesus' body away and and, and hid the body. But then the strangest thing began to happen. Jesus began to appear to people. He He appeared to responsible people like Mary of Magdalene. And he appeared to doubting people like Thomas. In fact, the Apostle Paul summed it up with these words. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is he saying according to the Scriptures in the Scriptures? Because he's alluding to prophecies that were written hundreds of years prior, and they saw them unfold. They were expecting to see them, and they saw them. Just like we have prophecies that we're wondering, when are these going to be, or when are these going to unfold? And we're actually seeing things unfolding today. But going on, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, living at the time that he's writing this letter. And he goes on, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now why is it that the Apostle Paul wants his readers to understand that many, in fact most of those who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus were still alive? And why did Paul go into so much detail as to exactly who saw the resurrected Lord? Well, hold on to that for just a second, because I want to take you uh, just prior to the resurrection, to that day when Jesus suffered and died on a cross. Because on that day, on the day Jesus was crucified, he was forced to carry his own cross, the horizontal beam of the cross he would die on. He was forced to carry that from the courtyard at Pontius Pilate's home and office, and then carry it to this hillside called Golgotha. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus had already been so brutally beaten by this point that he fell under the weight of his own cross. And at that point, a very interesting thing happens that Mark wants us to be aware of. And I want you to see this from the Gospel of Mark. It says this. It says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by in his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now notice that. Why would Mark bother to give us the names of the children of the guy who helped Jesus carry the cross? Well, Rufus is listed in Romans chapter 16 as become, having become a believer, the son of the guy who carried the cross. So the audience to whom Paul is writing are very familiar with, with these two men, familiar with, with Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon. And he wants people to understand this. So what Peter and Paul are doing, they're giving a strong emphasis to to their reading audience and saying, hey, if you have doubts about Jesus's death, if you have doubts about Jesus's resurrection, here are the guys to go and ask. They're still alive and they witnessed it. They'll tell you for themselves what they saw. And this is important because it isn't the kind of thing that you do if you're writing about a a myth. The word indeed that we use each Easter is a Greek adverb. It's the word antos. It's, It's there for added effect to say, this really happened. It really did. We saw it. It's not a metaphor. It's not a vague hope. It's not just a comforting thought to get you through a tough day. You know, when Jesus' followers saw him arrested, then beaten and hanging on a cross, they ran for their lives. They were scattered according to the prophecies. They were scared to death. How is it that the same group of people who had lost their leader and fled, how is it that they would go on to turn their known world right side up? And how is it that they would go on to to be the foundation of the most influential faith of all times? And you could argue, yes, that on the day of Pentecost, God poured out the Holy Spirit and he empowered them to do his work. But what kept them together and what kept them believing and praying until the Holy Spirit was poured out? It was the fact that this Jesus whom they saw die on a cross, placed in a tomb, guarded by Roman soldiers, did exactly what he said he would do even after he was dead. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, futile. And you are, I think I got that from the south when I lived in Dallas, the word futile. (laughs) Picked that up somewhere. Futile. And you are still in your sins. He is risen. Risen Yes, he has. So now that we've established the fact that Christ is risen, let's talk for a few more minutes about exactly what does this mean for you and me today. I like the way it's stated in John Fourteen nineteen, the second half of the verse. These are Jesus' words. Jesus said this. He said, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. Now, the context of this is before his death. It's before his resurrection. In fact, he's preparing his closest followers for those very things. And it's often said this way today, because he lives, we too shall live. So it's just a little twist on what Jesus said, but saying exactly the same thing. What does that mean? Well, we can see there's an emphasis on life there, but there's a couple of real simple things I just want to give you. In fact, there are three of them. And the first one is this, because he rose from the dead, you can be sure that your worth doesn't fluctuate. Uh, back a few years ago, it was very common to hear people say that I'm worth 40% of what I used to be or my net worth has, has dropped in half. But friend, that's never true in God's economy because in God's economy, the world's economy has absolutely no effect whatsoever. In God's economy, you are always worth the greatest price ever. You are worth the price of His only begotten Son. Can you imagine James and John talking about Uh, jesus and james says uh to john he is risen and then john responds saying he is risen indeed but my investment in the fish market has dropped 40 percent, and it's a bad day (laughs) no i think james would have said are you out of your mind jesus is risen from the dead and you're worried about fish i don't think that's going to happen he is risen indeed means that money and the economy don't get to define you he has risen means that your job, your position, your title, how things might happen to be going for you for the moment, don't get to measure your worth. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Listen, the world has a way of beating us down. The world has a way of devaluing us. But what God wants to understand today is that because he, the God of the universe, says that you are worth more than all the money in the world, you have extreme value. In fact, you're worth so much, God would give the ultimate price for you, His only begotten Son. He is risen. risen Second thing, the resurrection means that your future can be secure. One of the most quoted people in all of history is Winston Churchill. Back in 1941, at a moment of opposition for Europe in World War II, he spoke these words. He said, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Well, one little known fact about uh, Winston Churchill was the fact that he had this ongoing little feud with a member of parliament by the name of Lady Astor. And uh, she was just a very difficult opponent. Uh, We don't have those kind of uh, combats going on in Washington, do we? (laughs) Not, Not at all. But for every critical mark that she remarked that she would make Churchill always had a comeback and and one day lady astor said to Winston Churchill Mr Churchill if you were my husband i'd put poison in your coffee to which Churchill quickly shot back lady astor if you were my wife i'd drink it <laughs> but even churchill couldn't defeat death and at his funeral, according to his own plan, after every kind word about him had been spoken, there was a bugler placed high up in uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, and he began to play taps. The day is done. The night has come. There was silence, and everybody in that vast audience stood and reflected on the fact of this great life that they had seen and experienced and witnessed, this great life that had been lived and this great love life that had been lost and then right at the end of that silence another bugler began to play positioned high up again but this time he began to play reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. And my friend, that's the hope of the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he poses the question, do you believe this? You know, we're going to have problems this side of heaven. Let's be honest. It's crazy to think otherwise. There's a good chance that you're going to (laughs) die. Eventually. (laughs) But it doesn't concern Jesus one bit because he's already walked that road. And because he lives, your worth doesn't fluctuate. Your future is secure. And because he lives, you too shall live. He is risen you better believe it. There's a third thing that his resurrection means, and that means that your past is forgiven. Back in the early 1900s, there was an engineer who worked for General Electric by the name of Charles Steinmetz. He was a brilliant man, he was a genius, and no one understood the basic operations of General Electric the way that he did. So when he retired, you can just imagine the kind of confusion there was. No one knew exactly how to fix things the way that he did. Well, on one occasion, they had to call him back, so they hired him as a consultant because a piece of equipment had broken down and no one knew how to fix it. So as the story goes, Steinmetz came in, he looked at this piece of equipment for about five minutes, and then he pulled a chalk, piece of chalk out of his pocket and, and marked an X on the defective part so that someone else could come in and fix it. And then about... Five days later, General Electric received a bill from him for $10,000. Now, that was a huge sum back then, and GE was concerned, and so they sent him a note requesting that he itemize what exactly he was charging for. And so his itemized bill came back with just two things on it. Number one, making a chalk mark, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. Who do you call when life doesn't work? Who do you call when life breaks down? Who do you call when you get to tough times and you're not sure what you're going to do next? Who do you call when hope seems to escape you? Who do you call? You call on Jesus. The Bible says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, broken, not sure what to do, Christ died for the ungodly. And then going down to the 8th verse, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? It means there's hope for you. What does that mean? It means nothing that you have ever done, is too difficult for God to make right, because Jesus gave his life to cover it, and he rose again to prove his credentials. In fact, the resurrection always proves that your best days are always in front of you. You have future hope of glory. Because he lives, you too shall live. It's a very interesting thing how we don't like to talk about death. I mean, we'll talk about just about anything else, but we really don't care to even think about death. Uh, We play a game called life. We eat a cereal in the morning called life. (laughs) No one ever eats a cereal called death. Even those who hate the morning don't eat death in the morning. We buy life insurance, and that's a very interesting idea because... uh, There's only one way to collect life insurance. What's that? Yeah, no one buys life insurance just in case they happen to live. But we call it life insurance because we don't know how to handle death. Death is uncomfortable for us. But Jesus said, and this is it again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he poses the question, do you believe this? See, here's what I know. I know that there are two ways that are are made possible for you to experience the resurrected life and have hope of a future resurrection. One is for you to be absolutely perfect because God is perfect and heaven is a perfect place. The place will be forever, is a perfect place. That means no more violence. That means no more injustice. That means no more politicians. Oh, sorry about that one. That means no more madness. That means no more deceit or trickery or greed and no more arrogance. So one plan for your future hope is for you to be absolutely perfect. How are you doing with that one? Hmm? So so we want to debate with God, and, and we try to convince ourselves that there's a good enough plan. You know, maybe if I'm good enough, God will surely let me in. But the problem with the good enough plan is that God isn't a good enough God. Besides, good enough people will only end up messing up a perfect place. So then we try to argue the comparison plan. You know, I think God's going to kind of judge us on the curve. As long as I'm better than average, then I'll be okay. I'm good to go. He'll, He'll let me in. But that means your eternal hope is based on the idea that someone's worse than you, and that makes you a judge. You know, I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm no Adolf Hitler either. Well, there's good news, my friends, and this is the good news. God has a better plan. And God knows that you're not perfect. He knows that I'm not perfect. And he knows that left to ourselves, we can never be perfect. So he has the grace plan. Jesus lived the perfect life. You could never live. Jesus died the perfect death. You could never die. And he rose in a way that we could never do without his power at work in our lives. But in his death, And this is so important. It wasn't just a kind deed in history. In our death, he literally, as this perfect man, took our sins upon himself and took the due penalty for our sins upon himself. He carried them to the cross, and then he carried them to the grave so that whoever puts their trust in him can have hope of becoming everything that God ever intended them to be. But here's the deal. It's not enough to know that. It comes back to that question. Do you believe this? How are you going to respond? This is your moment. This is your moment. There's a blood-stained cross. There's an empty tomb. There's a risen Savior. God has done His part. Will you do yours? And to all who will embrace Jesus, God says, because I live, you too shall live. That's not just pie in the sky. That's hope. That's power for your transformation. Hope that you can become everything God intended you to become because of the power of God at work in you. But it requires repentance. It requires recognizing that here's God the Almighty and you've turned your back on him and you've been doing your own thing without any consideration whatsoever of his plan and purpose for you. It's about turning around and saying, God, I see where this life gets me. It's futile. I want to do life your way. I'm coming home. I give myself to you. Come into my life. Make me everything that you desire for me to be. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that in this world that's so disappointing and so filled with uncertainty and confusion, you have given us this kind of hope through your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin upon you and carrying them to the cross, and to the grave, and bearing them forever. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead to prove your credentials. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your Holy Spirit to empower all who believe to walk in your will and your purpose. Today, Lord, I receive you. I receive you. I want to learn how to do life your way.